0: Father, would you hear the silent prayers of our heart just now? Thank you that you are so personal. And God, thank you that you've given each of us a measure of faith. But God, today we're asking that you would increase our faith in who you are and what you're longing to do in our lives. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. You know, the blessing of getting to go to Israel, which I didn't expect necessarily, is that sometimes you read through a verse and suddenly something pops out to you that you might not have even thought about before. And today I want to share something with you that is meaningful to me from my experience that has made me look at a story that Jesus uh, engages with the disciples in in a new and meaningful way. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He asked them a very important question, but before we get to that, he says, I went into the region of Caesarea Philippi. How many of you know where Caesarea Philippi is? I don't blame you. I didn't either. But here's the thing. It's important, and you can learn a lot about the entire context of this story if you know a little bit about Caesarea Philippi. So the Sea of Galilee is the area where Jesus spent most of his time doing his ministry. The the town called Capernaum was known as his town. He lived right there on the Sea of of Galilee. He spent most of his time there once he started his, his ministry after growing up in Nazareth. But things began to get out of hand. He began doing all of these miracles. People were following him. He was feeding the the thousands of people 5000 people at a time you know multiply it by women and children he was feeding all of these people and then he began to tell them that you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood and they were not understanding what he meant and they weren't willing to come to him to have life they just wanted the good stuff he was going to give them they were only concerned for the blessings they could get from him and so a bunch of his disciples began to turn away from him And then the scribes and the Pharisees, they got worried about what Jesus is doing. So they begin to send spies all the way up to Galilee. Now, Galilee is quite a ways journey from Jerusalem. It's like three weeks to get there. It's not just right next door. You don't just hop in a car. Well, we did, but back then you did it. It was a long journey. And so they send spies up there to find out what is this guy up here in Galilee? What is he all about? What is he doing? They knew what he'd done when he was in Jerusalem. He'd cleansed the temple. He'd worked healings on Sabbath. He'd done all of these things that they were just a little uncomfortable with. So they sent these spies up there to find out what is Jesus doing and to try to entrap him. And so Jesus, after a couple of these encounters, when they tell, tell him, give us a sign so that we can know that you're the Messiah. And Jesus was all about blessing people. He'd work a miracle for you if you were sick. Peter's mother-in-law, he he healed her when she was sick on a a Sabbath. But he wasn't about just saying, hey, I'm going to make fire come down from heaven so that you can be looking at me as a really great person. Jesus wasn't all about glorifying himself. That's not who God is. And so he wouldn't work a sign just to bring glory to himself. And instead, in verse 16, or verse 13, it says that when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is the northernmost part of Jesus' ministry. From Galilee, from the Sea of Galilee, it's about 25 miles up to Caesarea Philippi. Now, I say up to Caesarea Philippi because the Sea of Galilee is at 700 feet below sea level, it's really low. And From there, you can look up and you see up on the hillside, you see these high mountains way off in the distance. It's really beautiful, the Sea of Galilee. And you see these, it's called the Golan Heights, where there's this whole area, this whole plateau that's high. And then above that, you see Mount Hermon way off in the distance. It's mentioned in the Psalms sometimes. Well, one day we decided to go up to Mount Hermon. And I'll show you a picture of Mount Hermon here. If we can get it up on the screen, there's a picture of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is at 9,000 feet, so that's about 10,000 feet almost above the elevation of the Sea of Galilee. You see it up there in the distance. It's on the border with Syria, so they actually have towers up there and stuff for surveillance that our guide said, I can't tell you what happens up there. It's top secret because that's right on the border of Syria. So up there, we got... We had lunch here at this spot where we're at, so we're already up on the Golan Heights by this point. So you can tell how far above the Sea of Galilee this mountain is because the Sea of Galilee is um, another probably 1,300 to 2,000 feet below where I'm at right there. So from there, we, we went on and we looked at Mount Hermon, we looked at some other spots, and then we went to this place called Banias. And as we came to Banias, He told us, this is Caesarea Philippi, and this is going to change your perspective on a story in the Bible. The next slide shows what we found at Caesarea Philippi. There were some ruins of a town, like a lot of the ruins. Some people got sick of seeing ruins because there's all these pillars and buildings and different things. But go back to the picture before that. There you see, there's just this rock escarpment there right above Caesarea Philippi. And then you'll notice that there is a big black cave right there. Pick it back up in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is saying, who do the people say that I am? Who do people think that I am? Do they really understand who I am? Verse 14, so they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. I mean, this was actually some high compliments that people were paying to Jesus. They're saying, you're like Elijah the prophet coming back. You're like Jeremiah. You're this great prophet who's working all of these miracles, all of these wonders. But it's not enough just to believe that Jesus is a good person. That's a good thing. But it's not enough. Because Jesus goes on to ask in verse 15, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? In verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ. That's the anointed Messiah, the son of the living God. And we know that he understood this to be a divine term because in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 33, the disciples, after Jesus had walked on water, he stilled the storm. He got back in the boat and the storm is stilled. They're in awe of him and they say, You're the son of God. And they worship him they understood that the Son of God was not begotten by God in the sense that you might go to have a child, but instead He was God Himself who became human, fully human and fully divine. So they said, you are the Son of the living God, Peter spoke, speaking as the, the spokesman. Verse 17 continues, Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven and i also say to you that you are peter and on this rock i will build my church and the gates of hades will not prevail against it now here when he says he there's a little play on words in the greek now jesus was speaking aramaic so the words that he used would have been different but matthew seems to be capturing the story and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's using Greek. And so he says, you're Peter. And Peter means like a little pebble, a little stone, a little movable stone. And he says, I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, which is Petra, really similar to Peter, but Petra, which is a big rock, an immovable rock, an escarpment type of rock. And on this rock, I Will form my church, I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, this is fascinating in and of itself. It tells us a lot about who Jesus is because Jesus isn't talking about founding the church on Peter, but he's saying the church is founded on the rock. The church is founded on what you just said, Peter. You said that I am the Son of the living God. That reality, that faith is what is going to build this church. This motley group of ten men who are going to be sent out with their doubts, with their fears, who don't know what they're doing. They are going to build a church that will impact the entire world, that will show God's goodness to people far and wide. And they'll do it by having faith in the rock. That He is the Son of the living God. That He is God in human flesh. This is going to make all the difference. But what helps even more is to understand the context here. Because they're in Caesarea Philippi. And they would have known what took took place here in Caesarea Philippi. Because here in Caesarea Philippi, we'll put up that picture again. You see that there was a big cave there. And if you went closer, you see that the cave is this big cavern that people would be able to come close to. And it was actually a spring for the Hermon River that came out of it. And this river was one of three tributaries that goes into the Jordan River to form the massive Jordan River at the time. For years, the ancients looked at this as a sacred place. The Canaanites, we believe had Baal worship going on here because they said, hey, this is a spot where out of it comes water and, and Baal is the, the god of, of rain and, and so we're going to worship Baal here in this spot. There's a, an Old Testament city by the name of uh, Baal that, that, that we believe was here. But later on in the time of Jesus, there was somebody else who was worshipped here. You know, this wasn't the traditional territory of Judea where there were faithful jews who were following the torah but here you had an area that had been conquered by alexander the great an area that had had the influence of greek hellenism and they had come through with their gods and when they got to this place they said ah this is the spot of the god pan have you ever heard of the god pan before me neither so i did a little research on the god pan i'm going to put up a picture of the god for you this is a sculpture of him one of the only ones that was decent enough for me to put up here for you but you'll notice that his top half is human except for that on his head he has two horns and then his bottom half is a goat's bottom half it's the legs of a goat and he was the ga- the goat he was the the god of of forests and of springtime he was the god of of A lot of things that we don't want to talk about. He was a God who was very fickle. A God who was very difficult to make happy. A God who never found a faithful partner. A lot of gods, they were sleeping around, but at least they would have one partner. This God was always just pursuing after different people and forcing them to have a relationship with Him. He was not the God that you wanted to come into contact with. In fact, there's a word in our language that comes from the word you might be able to guess it it's the word panic that's the kind of feelings that they said came from the the god Pon when he would play on his feet his flute and he was going through the forest and you heard that flute playing it would strike panic into your heart and that's why the Greeks won they said the battle of marathon was because of the panic that took place from the god Pon. So in this place, there's this massive spring. If we go back to that picture before, there's this massive spring that's coming out and it's bringing this water that's refreshing the entire land of Israel. It flows all the way down to the Sea of Galilee and then out of the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea. And all along there is places where people farm. And this was important. And so the Greeks said, well, what we need to do is to worship pawn here. Because Pond lives down inside of this in the underworld, and and we need to come here and we need to satisfy him so that he'll continue to give us the water. And so they would take sacrifices, and they would take the sacrifices and they'd throw it into the spring. And the sign there tells you that if the, the spring sucked the sacrifice in, then you would watch. And if you didn't see blood appear down below in the streams, you knew that that sacrifice was accepted by this God. But if no, uh, and sorry, if, if blood appeared, then you knew that it wasn't accepted by the God. But if you didn't see blood in the streams down below, then you knew that the sacrifice was accepted and he was happy. Can you imagine serving a God like this? Where you bring a sacrifice. In fact, our guide said that in springtime, that they would take the youngest baby in their village. That they would take this baby up to that spring and that they would toss that baby in hoping that it would be a good spring and they'd get plenty of water. Friends, when you have a bad picture of God, it warps a lot of things in your life. It warps how you treat other people. It warps how you treat yourself. It warps your view of reality. It causes a lot of problems. Imagine sacrificing babies in order to please some goat God and doing all kinds of other unmentionable things in church in front of this spring in order to get the favor of this God. People are being mistreated here. People are being... Totally disrespected here in order to please this fickle God. So here you have this place that they knew as the gates of the underworld. Here when Jesus says the gates of Hades, that's the Greek translation for the word Sheol, which in the Old Testament isn't just for hell, but it's also for the grave. It's for the underworld. It's for the place that you don't want to end up, obviously. You want to live. But it's Sheol, the underworld. And this was known as the gates for the underworld where Pon lived. And people would come and they'd try to satisfy their God in order that He could send them good things from the underworld. He could send them the, the, the springs of water come out and to get the fertile area for the Jordan River. And Jesus chooses this place to take His disciples. In fact, if you look at the Gospels, He takes them up into the Golan Heights in this region for probably two to six months. And it's just him and the disciples. One-on-one time. So that he can prepare them for their mission. So that he can explain the things that are going to happen to them. And here in this place, he begins to unveil to them who he is. He says, who am I? Who do the people say that I am? But who do you say that I am? The Son of the living God. And then jump down. If you look in verse 21 verse 21, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Jesus is bringing them here intentionally because he wants to teach them who God is. He wants them, first of all, to understand that he is the son of the living God, that he himself is God in human flesh, that Everything that Jesus did reveals who God is to us. You wonder what God is like. You wonder what the Father is like. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Every action of my life has just been an outbirth of who God is. So when Peter says, you are the the Christ, the Son of the living God, then he says, that statement, Peter, that belief in who I am is what I'm going to build my church on, and the gates of Hades, this misunderstanding of God, this this treating God like a God that needs to be satisfied, a God that that you can convince to give favor to you, a God that, that you need to throw human sacrifices to, that God will not prevail against the true picture of the living God. The gates of Hades will not prevail against this rock who is Jesus Christ. And if you wonder if that's who the rock is, look at Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4 tells us that God Himself is the rock. And in verse 4 it says this, He is the rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. This is beautiful. This is who God is. He is without injustice. This means that that God treats every person with steadfast love. That He will never stop loving you. That He refuses to act with anything else but unselfish care for your good in your life. No matter what you do, no matter where you've been, no matter what's going on in your life, that's who God is. When Jesus went to the cross, when he begins to tell his disciples, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die, they begin to tell him, no, you can't do that. But he had to explain to them, this is the only way to save this world. This is the only way that God can demonstrate to sinners that he loves them more than His own existence. That He has their good in mind. That He cares about their lives. And when we come to realize that, Deuteronomy tells us that He is a rock. His work is perfect for all His ways are justice. A God of truth without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. We begin to trust that everything God does is good. That every work of His life is for our benefit. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift Comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no shifting shadow. I want to ask you a question. If you go to Yosemite, how many of you have been to Yosemite before? Okay, what is your favorite rock in Yosemite? I'll take some some hands. Who somebody tell me, what's your favorite rock? Half Dome. Somebody else. Half Dome, anybody else have a different favorite rock in Yosemite? El Capitan? That's an amazing one. The biggest rock. The most, uh, yeah, but Half Dome's the coolest shaped one, maybe. Any other favorite rocks? There's Cloud's Rest. There's all of these amazing rocks. I mean, there's plenty to choose from in Yosemite. That's why rock climbers go there all the time. But have you ever, before going to Yosemite, called the Park Service, and you call them up and say, you finally get to the representative, it's hard to get to them, you finally get to them, and you say, okay, I have a question for you. I want to come to Yosemite this Wednesday. Will Half Dome be there? Will El Capitan be in Yosemite Valley this week? It will? Are you sure? We don't call and ask that because rocks are steadfast. Rocks. Don't move very quickly. Rocks don't change. Your God is a steadfast rock. He's always righteous. He's always treating you with justice and righteousness and goodness and love. He never changes in how He treats you, no matter what the actions of your life are. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He did it for the entire world because that's who God is. Because God can't change from loving you. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And that's never going to change about God. He's going to continue hoping in us even if we turn away from Him. You might doubt that. You might question that. But here we are talking about the God pond. And it's interesting if you were to look up on the wall there. I'll put up the next picture in the slideshow. And you can see here that there were a bunch of temples that were built next to where this grotto was. There was temples all along here. There was one built there to the god Zeus. There was, in the next slide, you'll see these these little inscriptions to different gods. And these are like, you can see how there are gates actually inscribed on this rock. (laughs) The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. His disciples knew what He was talking about. They understood what was going on here. They knew why they had been brought to this spot. It was to remember that Jesus is not like those gods. That He is steadfast. He is good. You can count on His goodness. John 6.37 says that whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. You can cling to that promise. You can take it to the bank that He will never, ever turn you away when you come to Him. That's who our God is. But here you have this place where all different types of worship is taking place. And I love how it describes it in the Desire of Ages, <clears throat> page 411. It says, around them were represented forms of superstition that existed in all parts of the world. You see how there, were, there was Baal worship that had happened there. there was, the Greeks had brought their gods there. There were gods from all over. Superstition was represented in this spot. And Jesus intentionally brings his disciples here for a reason. He wants them to get the difference. He wants them to know who He is in contrast with who those gods are. Jesus desired that a view of these things might lead them to feel their responsibility to the heathen. Because when I recognize that God feels that way about every person on the planet, it begins to transform my own feelings towards the person who might have mistreated me. Towards the people who reject my God. To the people who might even say blasphemous things about Jesus how am I going to treat that person? How would Jesus treat them? How did Jesus treat people? As He was there on the cross and people were saying the most blasphemous things, they were telling Him to save Himself when He was trying to save them. They said, come down from the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Constant love is the only way that Jesus knows how to treat you. Even if you're trying to kill Him. Even if you're trying to put God to death, even if you say God doesn't exist, God is still loving you. In fact, I think Paul might have been thinking of exactly this. Because go over to Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, we pick up a story where again, we probably see the influence of the God Pon in the story. Acts chapter 17. And here we find Paul in Athens. Acts chapter 17 and verse 16 it says, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. He looks at them and he says, ah, oh, they're worshiping all of these crazy gods who are constantly fighting and mistreating them and who, who they don't know when they bring them a sacrifice, they don't know if that sacrifice is going to be accepted. They don't know what, what, what side of the bed their God woke up on this morning. These people are worshiping gods that they don't know how this God is going to treat them. And his spirit is provoked within him. He's, he's bothered by this. He's come to tell them about Jesus. And he does it in an interesting way. We won't go into all the details. But starting in 22, he starts to tell them he has this speech on a place called the Arapagaeus, which is right next to the Acropolis. Now, the Acropolis is an interesting place because it was this hill that had all of these temples and shrines on it to all of the different Greek gods and gods from around the world. As the Greeks believed and the Romans believed that you could just add in gods and bring more gods. And that's why eventually you were worshiping emperors. So on this hill, they had a shrine or a temple to the god Pond. And it could be that, that Paul was standing there by this temple to the god Pond. And maybe his his memory was stirred to what Jesus had said in Caesarea Philippi. And he's thinking about these things. And he's thinking, this has got to stop. We've got to do something about this. These people have to understand who God is. That he's not like this. So watch what he tells them. He tells them about their statue to an unknown God. And he says, what you've been doing is you've been worshiping God without knowing it. And then he goes on to say this in verse 26, talking about the true God in heaven. He says, And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. He's saying that every person on the planet, God brought them into existence. You're here for a reason. You're here for a purpose. And He's been arranging your life, even where you've lived and the different things that have happened in your life. He's been a part of each step of that then he goes on to say this don't miss verse 27 the purpose for why God is so involved why he created all of these people why he's involved in their lives is verse 27 so that they should seek the Lord in the hope God has hope did you know God has hope in you do you have hope in you in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. In Him, we live and move and have our being. Paul's saying He's been right there with you. God has been close to you every step of your life. He's been drawing you with His love. He's been influencing the steps in your life and He's doing everything possible. He's hoping, hoping that you'll come to know this unknown God. That you'll come to worship a God of love who never changes in how he feels about you, who never changes in how he treats you, who will always treat you with love that is even greater than the love that he has for his own life, so much so that he would lay down his life for you. This is important because we read at the beginning, Psalm chapter 62. Psalm chapter 62. Before we get there, I want to read something from The Desire of Ages, page 415, while you're turning there. It says this, the rock of faith is the living presence of Christ in the church. The rock of faith. What gives us faith. What we can rely on is who Jesus is. The one who went through villages and healed every sick person. The one who would calm the storms in people's lives. The one who would give them hope. The one who would pick up the woman caught in adultery and to tell her, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. The one who constantly loved and would never stop loving all the way to the cross. Upon this, the weakest may depend. And those who think themselves the strongest will prove to be the weakest unless they make Christ their efficiency. Friends, it's so sad to think about all of the Jews who knew about Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, that God is a rock. He's steadfast. He's just. And yet, they participate in Baal worship. They would participate in going to the spring, the grotto of Pan, and they would throw their sacrifices in because they didn't trust that God would take care of them. But how is it in my life Do I experience what Psalm 62, 6 and 7 says? He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I will not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. The psalmist says, I can have confidence in any situation in life, anything that comes to me. I can have confidence because in that moment, though my emotions may not be be where I want them to be. Though I may not understand the circumstances, though it may be difficult and hard, in that moment I have a rock that is steadfast and sure. And that rock is that I know that Jesus loves me. And that He'll never stop. That I know that Romans 8.28 says that He will cause all things to work together for good. He doesn't cause all things, but He causes those things and He works those things around for good in my life, for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. This is important in the world we're living in today. I don't know how you feel when you turn on the news in the morning. You feel a little terrified to know what's coming next. How about when you pick up the phone and it's a family member that you haven't heard from in a long time and you know that you have a sick relative? How about... When you get that call from the doctor. And the doctor says, it's stage four cancer. What do you do in the moment when the storm strikes you? It's no longer about the other people out there. It's no longer telling them to have faith. But in that moment, you need faith. And in that moment, what you need is a rock. And that rock is Jesus. And the rock is trusting that He never changes. That He always treats you with steadfast love. That Matthew 5.45, he says, the Father sends his rain on the evil and on the good. I'll put up one more picture of Caesarea Philippi. If you look at, at this picture, it shows as we were walking down from Caesarea Philippi, the spring is still flowing. You think about this. For years, people have been worshiping Baal. They've been worshiping Zeus. They've been worshiping Pon, And God, the true giver of life, has continued to send this spring so that we could have the Jordan River despite the fact that they're denying his existence, despite the fact that they're spitting on who he is, he continues to give and to give because that's who God is and he can't stop. And he never will stop. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news for my life. When bad things happen in my life, I can cling to Jesus no matter what. I don't know what you're dealing with this morning. I don't know what trials you're facing. I don't know what things you've gone through. But this has power for our lives. It has power not only for when the bad news comes about tragic things happening, but it has power for that moment when somebody asks you something and you really want to make them happy, but you know that to tell them the truth wouldn't feel so good. And in that moment... You have to decide, are you going to lie to them? Or will you prayerfully find a way to tell them the truth? It applies when you're in the grocery parking lot and you accidentally smack into that other car and you don't have the money to fix that car because it's a BMW. And you think to yourself, nobody saw me. You look around, nobody's looking. What do you do in that moment? It's so easy to drive away unless you have a rock (laughs) steadfast, that you can say, Jesus, I know you're good. I know what you've told me to do is good, and I'm going to cling to you, and I'm going to do what you've called me to do, no matter what, because of who you are. Friends, that changes everything. It's changed everything in my life, and I believe that it will change absolutely everything in all of our lives as we truly come to see God for who he is. Manuscript Releases, page volume 9, page 289, it says this. We believe in a general way, but we lose much because we do not trust fully and entirely in God our Maker. We lose a lot because we don't trust entirely to Jesus. We still want to figure out the back door. We still want to figure out what we can do to accomplish what needs to happen. And I can tell you, this is becoming really real for me. Being a potential dad, I told you that, 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 that I know that there's baby, uh, a baby on the way. Okay, I wasn't going to do this, but I want to show you another picture, right? So I got a call <clears throat> while I was in Israel, if you remember. I got a text message, actually, that said, are you awake? And in that moment, I was afraid that something had happened, and I text back and I found out pretty soon that Leah thought that she was losing the baby. And it was hard to deal with being that far away and not knowing what to do and not being able there to comfort her. But thankfully, many of you were there for her to comfort her and I thank you for that. So you can imagine that when I get texts, sometimes I'm a little nervous about what's coming. This morning, at early in the morning, I suddenly get a text, Are you awake? And immediately I'm going, oh no, <laughs> what's happening right now? You know, it's gotten to the place where now when I go on a trip, I tell Leah, look, Jesus is going to be with us. No matter what, he'll be with you. Just remember that, and everything will be okay. Just cling to that, no matter what happens. Because every time I go away, something happens. So I went to SoCal, and I'm at a camp meeting, and I get a call And Leah says, I had the ultrasound this morning. I said, yeah, I know. What happened this morning? And she says, well, um, some good news and some bad news. She said, well, the good news is that the hematoma is gone. And the bad news is, well, I don't know if you said bad news, actually. Two good news? Is that what you said? Two things to tell me. Not good news and bad news, because it wasn't bad news at all, actually. But I got, see, that shows you what you begin to assume when you're afraid of life. What you begin to assume when you're not expecting that God has your back. What you begin to assume when you think that God is this God that you've got to satisfy, that you've got to come up with enough good works to make Him happy with you so that it'll give you favor in your life. When you've got to pray hard enough, prayer is a powerful thing because it connects you to God. But when you think that you've got to pray hard enough in order to make Him love you, then there's an issue in prayer. It doesn't do any good. It didn't do the Pharisees any good. Okay, so so there... She's on the phone with me, and she begins to tell me the story. I won't tell you the news until I show you the picture. I'll show you the first picture up on the screen. She tells me that she was there in the room, and they're scanning her. And as they're scanning her, they say, oh, look, the baby is right on track. I think it was eight weeks and four days at that point. Yeah, you can read that at the bottom of the screen. And it's the right size, and she got to hear the heartbeat. And then Leah looks at the screen, and she says, what's that? (laughs) And the, the lady says, well, I don't know. And so the lady begins to scan some more. She says, oh no, I'm so sorry. I, I'm so sorry I missed this. I, I should not have missed this. You're having twins. Identical twins. We know for a fact that we put one embryo in there. But God has doubly blessed us. And there are two, two babies forming in there. Now we need your prayers because they're sharing a placenta and that means that they need equal nourishment and there's a lot of things that need prayer. And day by day, we don't know what's going to happen. But we do know that God is faithful. That we can rely on Jesus no matter what. That He has delightful things in store for our lives. Friends, this is a rock. And Jesus wants to build this church on it. He wants to build your home on it. He wants to build your life on it. He wants to give you faith in who Jesus is. So it's my desire to stand on that rock. I don't know about you. There is good news about that rock. I'll finish reading this quote, but as I read it, I just want to invite you to think about do you want to take a re stand today? Do you want to recommit today to say, "Hey, I want to recommit to found my life on the rock. It goes on to say this We can, when we can, notwithstanding disagreeable circumstances, rest confidingly in his love. Notwithstanding difficult and disagreeable circumstances. It's easy when things are good, but what about when they're disagreeable? It goes on to say rest confidingly in his love believing the love that He has for us, and shut ourselves in with Him, resting peacefully in His love, the sense of His presence will inspire a deep, tranquil joy. And it won't matter what phone calls you get. It won't matter what the news is because you know that your God is good and you can take any problem to Him. You can take Muggins, the dog, to Him. And you can take your child to Him. You can take your grandma to Him. You can take your work situation to Him. You can trust in His faithfulness in your life. This experience gains for us a faith that enables us not to fret, not to worry. I'm sick of worrying, aren't you? I worry about way too many things in my life. But to depend upon a power that is infinite. That's the Christ, the Son of the living God. As I pray, if it's your desire to trust in Him, or at least to say, God, I want to know a little bit more about who you are as a faithful God. I just want to invite you to raise your hand as we bow our heads and pray. Father, you are so good. And Lord, today, there are so many misconceptions about who You are. God, there are so many people outside the doors of this church and maybe even here this morning who who aren't even really sure that You exist. And God, thank You that You don't let that stop You from blessing us, from pouring out good in our lives, from being there for us, and from hoping that maybe will grasp for You. So God, as we lift our hands up to You today, it's with an assurance of who You are, not of who we are. It's lifting our hands and just saying, yes, Jesus, I believe that You are the Son of the living God. I believe that You are the Christ. I believe that You went all the way to the cross for me. And I want to know You more. Father, lead us to day by day experience more of you in your word, to experience more of you in prayer, to fix our eyes on the things you're doing in this world, and to trust you more and more deeply. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.